You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 182, and I am Nathan Gilmore. I'm an associate professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I am joined on the line today by Dr. David Grubbs, an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. David, how are things in Texas? Oh, well, you know, pretty pretty mild. Uh, one, of my, one of my colleagues said the other day that uh, I should enjoy this because it's one of the five days that in the year in which Houston is livable. There you <laughs> so, know. I can't believe so. it's five days. <laughs> well, I'm treasuring this window. I mean, for the past few days, it's been like mid-70s, mid-80s with a really pleasant breeze. Mid-80s? Yeah. It is February. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that sounds awful. Well, you know, Tejas. The man horrified at the heat of Texas is Dr. Michael Farmer. He's an assistant professor of English at Crown College. Michael, how are you this morning? I'm good. I mean, I'm I'm good because I'm not living in Houston. <laughs> I, 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 nothing, no, yeah. nothing against Houston Baptist University, a fine institution who I know is going to sponsor our upcoming Christian Humanist <laughs> Conference. You're going to get me fired. <laughs> <laughs> Well, folks, uh, you know, you've downloaded us, so you know about the Christian Humanist Podcast. You should also be aware that there are all other shows in the Christian Humanist Radio Network. The Christian Feminist Podcast recently did a pair of shows on Jane Eyre and Taylor Swift, both of which were well worth listening to. Uh, the Sectarian Review did a an episode on football, and they're coming up with another one on the Christian film industry. Book of Nature continues to cook on, talking about science and faith and all sorts of groovy things. And of course, for the next month and a half, you're going to be listening to uh, Michael Farmer on Christian Humanist Profiles, because uh, <laughs> he has just gone hog wild booking the interviews. It's true, uh, there's a bunch of them. I just, I just want to point something out. Our, uh, our listener, Jay Eldred, said on Twitter this morning that he has, uh, he's now subscribed to all the shows on the network, which I think means he gets a free t-shirt. But, uh, but he said, he said, it's wonderful to hear pietist schoolmen and hear Chris Garrett's pronounce German names properly. <laughs> that's yeah. I, I wish I could say that's not true, but it is. Das ist nicht gut. <laughs> <laughs> well, at any rate, uh, as our listeners know, when this episode drops, we will be, uh, more than two weeks past the Super Bowl. Uh, which for some of us, myself included, means that we are looking forward to the beginning of baseball season. So today we're going to talk a little bit of baseball. I don't normally start with personal experience in these episodes. That's more Michael's thing. Uh, but this one seems like a good personal experience subject matter. So David, start us off. What kinds of baseball have you watched, played, otherwise enjoyed or endured over the years? 
And what place, if any, does the game have in your world as of 2016? And when you're done, this is the episode to send it around the horn, so do so. Right. This one of the episode about Magellan, to be fair. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, then we can send it around all the horns. Um, So I was never on a baseball team uh, at any point ever. And no one will be shocked. The baseball has a couple of associations in my head. First, uh, grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, which has a a local minor league team, the Birmingham Barons, which uh, go back over a hundred years. They were the Birmingham Coal Barons back in the day. Mm. All right. Um, and I remember going to uh, going to Barron's games and watching the baseball, not understanding the baseball, uh, but really enjoying the fireworks afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, for me, the experience of watching baseball is la- is largely one of baffled confusion as numbers go up on a board for reasons that I scarcely understand, but fireworks at the end. Yay. And no, no, I can't have a hot dog. I got to tell my fireworks story here, Grubbs. Yeah. Uh, You know, Turner fields in a bad part of Atlanta. Um, It's not a great part now. So we left the game early once when I was in high school Mm -hmm. and, uh, we were walking next to this guy, and the Braves must have won, right? Because they shot off the fireworks. And as soon as he heard the explosion, he threw himself down on the sidewalk. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> that that's a rational uh, action. Actually. Right, right. Our listeners who have been to Turner Field will understand the impulse. <laughs> Man. <laughs> so, fireworks. Um, I've been to a Braves game. Uh, that was that was interesting. I understood things better that time, um, largely because I was sitting next to my father-in-law, who has coached baseball at the you know kind of youth stage for you know decades. Mm-hmm. So that that was that was helpful. Mostly, though, I think of baseball as my grandfather's game. My grandfather grew up playing baseball with the boys in his neighborhood. And one of the things that he did when he had uh, had the money to buy some property out in the country, he had a field. Uh, he had a baseball field out in out in kind of the back forty, uh, with uh, you know it it was regulation size. It had a pitcher's mound. It had the bases. Uh, it had you know the the fence behind home plate for. You know, so balls don't hit you. <laughs> it had all of that. It's called stuff. a backstop, David. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what it's called. I, you know, so for me, baseball is the game that my grandmother, that my grandfather, really, really wanted his grandsons to love. Um, so many summers with cousins, uh out on the baseball diamond, usually in the outfield with a glove that didn't fit, um, squinting in the Alabama sun, um, scared that a baseball was going to come towards me because I hadn't the foggiest of notions what to do when it did. (laughs) Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of baseball for me. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, so listeners, uh, David here is going to play the part of Michael when we do a medieval lit episode. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> basically. Yeah, <laughs> Michael, what do you, Michael, what do you got? I uh, I played softball on various church leagues when I was in uh, middle school and high school. I played uh, outfield and first base. I think I was pretty good at fielding. I was never much of a hitter. Um, when I was in graduate school in Omaha, I used to go to, to see the, uh, Omaha Royals at, uh, Rosenblatt Field, the much missed Rosenblatt Field, I'm sure. Uh, the great thing about that was, uh, the beer you bought at the stadium cost more than your tickets. <laughs> um, and of course the, those games weren't much fun without the beer. Uh, the Om- you got to remember this is 2006, 2007, and uh, the Omaha Royals were a group of guys who weren't good enough to play for Kansas City. <laughs> I remember one game we sat there for an hour because the Royals had gotten lost on the way to their own stadium. Oh, that's great! <laughs> yeah, it was very Spinal Tap. I, I I used to watch the Braves quite a bit um, when when I lived in Georgia. I don't know that I've watched a baseball game since I moved to Minnesota because they don't televise the Braves games, and because I started to get some uh, some bad feelings about the role of professional sports in this society, which uh, I think Anderson and the gang expressed pretty well in that sectarian review about football. Um, mm-hmm. So there's not a whole lot of need for me to go over them here. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's my experience. Very good. Uh, you know... What what the uh, Atlanta Braves were to you, Michael, the uh, Chicago Cubs were to me. I grew up in central Indiana where there was not a major league team, so people's loyalties tended to be split three ways between the Cardinals and the Reds and the Cubs. Uh, I was one of the Cubs people because my family was Cubs people. Um, <laughs> I, I do remember that you know my dad would listen to Chicago Cubs games on WGN, on AM radio, uh, which that far away from Chicago meant that basically you would get the talk in between pitches, but then when the ball was put into play, the ambient noise from the stadium would turn the signal into static, and then you'd have to wait until the play was over for them to explain to you what just happened. And this was every summer. I mean, this is what my dad would listen to while we were out in the backyard. So, uh, you know, this is how I uh, started learning about baseball. When I was in Little League, I batted left hand. Uh, which meant, as those of you know who batted left hand in Little League, I got hit by a lot of pitches. Um, <laughs> you know, I I eventually uh, quit baseball right around fifth grade because there was a season where I was I was getting hit by at least one pitch every game and sometimes more than that, and I finally got tired of that. Um, <laughs> that said, I mean, you know, I still watched baseball. I played intramural softball in college. Um, you know, played intramurals in seminary. Now that I've got kids, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of entering into a, another stage of my baseball life. Like Michael and like Danny, I've got serious reservations about the big league sports, but I still love to go to the baseball park where my daughter plays t-ball, where I'm an assistant coach for my son's baseball team. Uh, it is as much a part of my life as as really teaching is. I mean, you know, I, I teach during the day. I'm at the baseball park at night in the spring. Uh, and, you know, what what really kind of melts my students' heads is that I say, you know, first of all, if listeners don't know, I've got a long commute to get to the college where I teach. But what I tell them is 
when I'm in the town where I live and people see me on the sidewalk, I am coach. You know, they, they have no idea that I'm Dr. Gilmore. I am, I'm coach Nathan. So, uh, nice. I, I kind of live that, you know, uh, double identity between the place where I work and the place where I sleep. So Michael, I want, I don't necessarily want to do a full history of the game from its European roots to the designated hitter era. So as an alternative to that, since you're our Americanist and baseball is, you know, one of the quintessential American games, what does baseball look like in some significant American novels? I will preface this by saying of the novels I'm about to discuss, I have read exactly one of them. Okay. <laughs> um, of the novels I have read, baseball is often a important, like, scene setter. So in Jewish American fiction from the middle part of the 20th century, for sure, baseball shows up in the background of most of them because it's just part of living in New York City in the 50s is is following the Dodgers or the uh, or the Yankees or the Giants. I can't remember when the Giants left mm-hmm. uh, left New York. But um, they, there are some major American novels that are directly oriented around baseball. The one I have read is a uh, recommendation. We did a sports episode our first or second season, and Sam Mulberry from Bethel wrote in and, and said that the best uh, sports novel of all time is the Universal Baseball Associated Incorporated J. Henry Waugh Proprietor. Um, so I read that on his recommendation, and it is indeed a, a great novel. And like I suspect most novels about baseball, baseball becomes a metaphor for something else. And in this case, well, you have this guy, J. Henry Waugh, who, uh, who creates a... Entire baseball league with people, like individual people with names and histories, and he plays entire seasons in over a matter of, I think, a month, uh, using a very complicated set of, I think it's die rolls. It's some sort of, uh, it's, it's some, yeah, you mean, I know. You mean stratomatic baseball? I don't know what that means, but yeah, I okay. guess. Okay, um, go ahead. But, but it ends up being this, this, uh, really complicated and weird, reflection about uh god's responsibility to the people he creates because uh what happens is uh was favorite player uh, th- this god plays favorites i guess uh i guess so does the god of the bible uh jacob have i loved esau have i hated anyway this guy's favorite player based on the the numbers that have come up is going to die from a line drive to the head and Waugh interferes and then you know all sorts of things happen but uh, that that's a, a great, weird baseball novel. <laughs> um, some other ones that are important that I have not read. Uh, Bernard Malamud's The The Natural, which is a uh, which is about a, a rookie. Well, he's not exactly a rookie. He's someone who tried out for the leagues years ago and then um, through a variety of strange circumstances was kept from it and then comes back as a rookie. And he has this wonder boy he calls his bad and he's a great success. And then he falls into the temptations typical of baseball. They made a Robert Redford movie out of it with a mm-hmm. very famous mm-hmm. Randy Newman score. Um, the movie apparently deviates quite a bit from the book. Another one um, that has a movie adaptation that everybody knows is uh, W.P. Kinsella's Shoeless Joe, which was made into the film Field of Dreams. And, uh, and again, baseball here is a metaphor. I haven't read the book. I've seen the movie. Baseball ends up being a metaphor for innocence, lost, and redemption because uh, it's it's about Shoeless Joe Jackson. It's about a, more accurately, it's about a guy who resurrects Shoeless Joe Jackson, um, who was involved in the 
the the first major baseball scandal, the Black Sox scandal, where, where the players were betting against themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, another one, Philip Roth's The Great American Novel, which is an alternate alternative history in which the communists try to shut down what's called the Patriot League of baseball. That's a Roth novel I haven't had, haven't read, so I don't know that much more about it. It's I don't think considered one of his his great novels. In fact, I always get it confused with American Pastoral, which is considered one of his great ones. So those are the ones I know of, uh, the important ones I know of. There was also one a few years ago. It was a first novel. I can't remember the author's name, but the book was called The Art of Fielding. Mm-hmm. Um, which I always thought was a book about Henry Fielding, and which turns out to be about <laughs> baseball. No, I, I mean I, I I heard interviews with the guy when it first came out, and I wanted to read it, but I was in the middle of writing my dissertation, so I wasn't reading anything. Right. Anyway, <laughs> uh, am I leaving that. anything important out there, Nathan? You must have read some baseball novels. Yeah, I mean, one of them that I, I have started about three different times, which is a story that I can tell about a lot of novels. <laughs> Uh, is The Brothers K, which is a baseball novel that is, you know, loosely inspired by Karamazov, of course. Uh, but it's about a, a family whose father is sort of a washed up pitcher. Uh, and so, you know, the title is a, is a pun on, you know, Karamazov and on the notation for a strikeout in a baseball scorebook. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think of other novels where, the, about the only other one that I have a lot of familiarity with is when I was a teenager, I read a lot of uh, cowboy and Western novels and I I was surprised just how often baseball got mentioned in those novels. A lot of times, you know, the, and of course, cowboy novels, I mean, they're not big on uh, Aristotelian tidiness of plot, uh, but they would have occasion to wander into towns where there would be a baseball diamond and the characters would have to learn how to throw a curveball or something of the ilk. Uh, so that was a sort of a fun uh, crossover of worlds in my mind. Uh, David, I know you read a lot of mystery novels. Are there any mystery novels that have baseball involved? Baseball had, uh, beyond the fact that it was my grandfather's game and was associated with the fireworks, um, I, didn't, I didn't say this because it was a mainly literary thing, and if I had to do anything, I'd do it in this question. Um, <laughs> there's a frequent... Um, uh, b- baseball comes up fairly frequently in Encyclopedia Brown novels. Mm-hmm. Oh, it sure does, uh, doesn't it? Um, and so for me, it was a uh, baseball was something that had it had a, a a kind of cachet or interest to it that I didn't get, you know. But in in the, in books, it always seemed interesting. But when I tried it in life, it mostly seemed miserable. Um, but, but yeah, it was, uh, that, that kind of Americana that you get in Encyclopedia Brown, uh, which often involves, you know, characters sort of slouching around with, you know, their baseball gloves or their bats or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that, that's, that's kind of the limit of my experience there. All but, right. I, I could I could say a whole lot more about stories about golf 
and stories in which cricket is important. The Dude, I could talk about golf stories for years because Updike <laughs> okay, okay. loves golf so much. <laughs> so does Wodehouse. for another episode, guys. Save it for another episode. <laughs> Lord help us if we ever do a golf episode. Yeah. yeah, well, that, that'll be the episode where I've got nothing to say. So I <laughs> well, we could we could release it on a Sunday afternoon, and then everybody could just fall to sleep, fall asleep to it. <laughs> that's yeah. nice. That's nice. <laughs> well, David, I want to get aesthetic for a moment here. Uh, compared even to football, but a, but 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 certainly compared to hockey or boxing or basketball, baseball is a game of vast spaces of tracking a relatively small object as it traverses those giant spaces at high speeds. Yet at the same time, many folks who don't have much of a taste for baseball say that it's too slow moving to be exciting. Talk a little bit about the contradictions in space and time that baseball involves. Hmm. What an interesting question. What, what is this Christian humanist profiles? Yeah, I know. Right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) When it, the, the, your question reminded me of, uh, and I, I have no idea who to attribute it to, but it's it's a quote that you'll hear used in reference to war, that war is long periods of boredom punctuated by moments of terror, mm-hmm. something like that, or, yeah. or frenetic action, or, or whatever, you know, you've, I've heard different variations of it. Baseball is like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, and that seems to be what you're getting at. Um, in, as a person who who doesn't understand games super well, um, I will say that that on one hand, watching a baseball game for the ignorant um, isn't as exciting because there isn't a lot of movement. Hockey's very exciting. I don't understand hockey either, but they're always <laughs> going somewhere, and sometimes they hit each other. Um, they're doing actiony things that I can understand. Um, to me, watching soccer is like watching fish in a tank who just kind of like move in directions for reasons I don't understand. And now all of a sudden the school has shifted into this direction and, and none of it makes sense. And then, and now we're cheering now. (laughs) Um, (laughs) baseball though, um, the, for me, the experience of watching baseball is like watching it's like watching battle chess, right? You remember the old game battle chess? I love oh, yeah. battle chess. Okay. <laughs> um, the, the, the slowness of it, the moments of calm are there so that you can slow down and appreciate the, the tactical niceties. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, you can see which bases are loaded. Who's coming up to bat how many outs have there been? Um, you know, what inning are we in? You can you, you can appreciate all of the all of the kind of points of you know tactical and strategic tension that are on in that moment, and then comes the pitch and the swing, and and you get to see which of those eventualities happens so and that's the battle part right you know one Mm. of the fun things about battle chess is you get to make your tactical decision and then you get to see the little animated man walk over there and hit somebody (laughs) right um so in 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 that way as someone who 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 doesn't understand games frequently um i've gotten more enjoyment out of watching baseball if i've got someone sitting next to me who 
can understand baseball because in baseball I have time to kind of learn <laughs> or relearn mm-hmm. um, as I'm watching. Whereas other games, things are happening so fast that no explanations help me. Um, so I, I, th- there's that kind of balance, I think, between um, being able to appreciate it as a kind of puzzle um, mm. having time to appreciate that a- aspect of it, but then also the excitement when those moments happen. So, so for me, it's not a positive thing. I, I, you know, I, I won't say baseball is boring. Um, if I have someone sitting next to me who can explain to me why this moment of quiet tension is important. Mm-hmm. Baseball's a game for stats nerds, right? Yes. Baseball baseball is best when you're when you're sitting in your room um memorizing your baseball cards. L- like <laughs> like I fantasy football is the is the the one everybody hears about but it seems like baseball would be much more suited for that than football because it's so much about these individual statistics. That's why the Coover novel works so well. And by the way, David, that sounds like a novel custom made for you because it essentially turns baseball into Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. (laughs) And you don't need another person to play it. And and, and by the way, Michael, I I didn't mention it earlier, but my dad used to play Stratomatic Baseball. That is what that game is called. Interesting. Oh yeah, yeah. But see, I, you can't imagine doing that with hockey. Mm-mm. I I can't at least. But baseball, th- those long stretches of nothing in baseball give you the chance to to uh, to write down all the the necessary statistics and also to drink as much beer as you can. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's uh, I guess that's in it too. Yeah. Golf exists so you can drink a martini at ten o'clock in the morning. Baseball exists. <laughs> Baseball exists so you can drink as much beer as you want. <laughs> well, I I had never thought of it that way, Michael. I'll, I'll have to confess. One, I guess, corollary to this uh, slowness that you guys are talking about is that when you listen to baseball on the radio, as I do, um, it's interesting because there is a certain art to being able to fill up air in between pitches. Uh, that, you know, every baseball announcer has different things that come up in between pitches. And I mean, you know, uh, you, you've got a wild range there, you know, I mean, just thinking about the announcers that I listened to growing up, you know, Cincinnati's Marty Brenneman was just a technician. I mean, he could tell you about the stats. He could tell you about, you know, the, the tactical mind games that the managers were playing with each other. And then on sort of the other, the, the, the Dionysiac extreme, I suppose, you had Harry Carey, uh, who, <laughs> you know, by about the third inning, uh, you know, he watched baseball Michael Farmer style and he had <laughs> so much Budweiser that, I mean, he'd start telling stories about his ex-wife and everything else. Uh, so, I mean, it, 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 it's fun to listen to on the radio. I, I wouldn't say irrespective of the fact that it's so slow, but precisely because it's so slow. <laughs> There's actually a corollary art that develops uh, to announcing baseball games. We'd be remiss, now that you've brought up Perry Carey, if somebody didn't talk about Will Ferrell's impersonation of him on Saturday Night Live. Uh, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> said, I, I can't do the the voice. Can you do the voice, Nathan? Oh, go- oh gosh. Apparently I don't know if I not. do it on cue. I, I have to be watching baseball to get uh, worked up into Harry Carey. So no, I'm gonna... And, you know, he just like uh, he just shakes his head back and forth and he says, Hey, Norm, <laughs> if you were a hot dog, would you eat yourself? 
<laughs> and having never, you know, listened to Harry Carey, I don't know how accurate that is, but it's sure funny. It, 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 it's pretty spot on, really. I, you know, I, I, I still remember when uh, Rafael Palmero was the uh, right fielder and then the first baseman for the Chicago Cubs. Uh, you know, Harry Carey, I remember his uh, co-host was Steve Stone, who was sort of more of the technician, you know, former Cubs baseball player. And, and Harry would, you know, get rolling and say, oh, man, that Palmero, that Palermo... He can hit that ball. He can do some fielding. Uh, that Palermo, I hope he's a Cub for a long time. And Steve Stone would say, well, Harry, I, I think you uh, pronounce his name uh, Palmero, not Palermo. And Harry would say, that Palermo, he might be one of the greatest Cubs players that I've seen in this generation. I just hope that he has a long and great career. And Steve Stone would say, uh, you know, it's, it's Palmero, Harry. And he says, oh, I know that Palermo something, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Incorrigible. <laughs> yes, the indeed. His son, his son Skip Carey announced for the Braves for a long time. Um, I think it's his grandson, isn't he? Or no, no, that's Chip Carey. Chip Carey. Oh gosh, who, the, who the now Carey I think or, or used to announce for the Braves last time I watched the Braves, but I, Skip Carey died a few years ago. Oh, did he really? Yeah, I, not I too long I... after Harry Carey died. Mm. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I remember. I mean, very well. I was a college senior in 1998 when Harry Carey died, and I mean it. It was one of those celebrity deaths that I actually, I mean, thought about, dwelt on. Mm. So it is also worth noting that uh, that his death did not stop Will Ferrell from uh, from doing or anyone else from doing that impression <laughs> on SNL because I remember one where it was Harry Carey was hosting a talk show and he's talking to this scientist woman and he asks her a question and she takes a long time to answer and says, "I'm sorry, aren't you dead?" <laughs> <laughs> and he said, we'll have to look into that. <laughs> well, and I remember an interview with Norm MacDonald. We, he was talking about going to Wrigley Field and doing some uh, radio work there, just kind of as a guest host. And uh, Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam was supposed to sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game" for the seventh inning stretch. And, uh, you know, Eddie Vedder, of course, was, I mean, a heavier drinker than heavy, Harry Carey, if that's possible. And, you know, by the time seventh inning rolls around, he's toasted. He, he barely knows where he is. So he kind of slurs his way through take me out to the ball game. And then uh, Norm MacDonald leaned up to him and said, all right, now you're supposed to yell, let's get some runs. That's what Harry Carey used to say. And Eddie Vedder, you know, took the microphone up and he says, all right, let's get some lunch. <laughs> Which is better than yelling, let's get the runs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, anyway, Michael, uh, baseball certainly involves Yankee Stadium and Fenway Park and Wrigley Field and the TED, but my hunch is that the screen has at least a comparable gravitational pull on the ways that I imagine the game anyway. I imagine that's the case for other folks, too. Talk for a little bit about a favorite or a least favorite or any other sort of baseball movie that comes to mind and what makes it memorable for good or ill. First of all, baseball may be the one professional sport that uh, that is actually you can actually watch it live and it, it, the experience works. I mean, watching football live, you can't see what's happening. Watching hockey yeah. live, I don't know how anybody does it. But baseball, <laughs> you can pretty much follow from the stands, which is nice. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the TV 
changes your experience, but it's not um, it's not as radical a change as other sports. But that's not what you asked. You asked about movies. Uh, the one the one that uh, that is most important to me, and I know David is also going to talk about a '90s children's baseball movie, but I'm going <laughs> to talk about the the movie Rookie of the Year. In oh which, yeah! In which Thomas Ian Nicholson breaks his arm and it sets weird, and all of a sudden he can throw uh, he can throw a pitch 150 miles an hour or something. <laughs> uh, it is a glorious piece of trash. I'm sure I haven't seen it. Um, I haven't seen it in a decade. Uh, I've watched that one with my kids. It's a fun one. You, you still like it? I like it as a kids movie. I say uh, funky butt loving all the time. That's what the doctor <laughs> says when he when he swings his arm and hits him in the face. Funky butt loving. <laughs> Uh, uh, Marv, Marv from Home Alone, Daniel Stern has a ridiculous oh, role as the pitching coach who uh, uh-huh. who says that he can't decide whether people should use ice or heat to rest their arm, and so he says he split the difference and gives people hot ice. He also gets stuck between the doors in an adjoining suite in a hotel, and and of course, I mean a uh, a truly uh, perform a uh, performance for the ages by Gary Busey as the. Uh, the aging star pitcher, the Rocket, <laughs> who I mean, he is he is full Busey in that movie. Mm-hmm. Don't call me Rocket Kid. <laughs> You're the Rocket now. Uh, again, I'm pretty sure it's a terrible movie, but uh, I love it, and uh, I think that may be the first place I ever saw Wrigley Field. Oh, very good, very good. Mm. Okay, so speaking of children's movies, The Sandlot is uh my one cinematic uh re- reference that I can make about baseball. Uh I have seen little bits of other baseball movies as they were on cable, but uh those little bits never held my attention long enough to, for the channel to stay there. Um The Sandlot uh is uh is a movie that is important in the Grubbs household because it was uh critical for me in understanding my wife. When I say Grubbs household, I mean the one that I have now with mm. with with my wife Katie, um, not the one that I grew up in. Um, my my wife grew up with the Sandlot, and her brothers played baseball, and her dad coached baseball, and it's part of their family culture. And so, as part of initiation into Normanness, um, I was required to watch the Sandlot. Which mean which means now I understand it when my father in law says um in in you know scarcely contained frustration, you're killing me, Smalls. That's that <laughs> fat redheaded kid who was in every sports kid's sports movie in the nineties, right? Mm-hmm. Well well Smalls Scotty Smalls was the was the little boy who doesn't know how to play baseball, but he has no friends and the only in that he knows is baseball. Well, the, right. the fat, the fat redheaded kid is the one who says you're killing me, Smalls. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. ham. Anyway, it, it's wonderful. Um, but as a uh, as an adult, I watch this movie and I find myself still identifying with it because I'm the bespectacled kid who knows nothing about baseball. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm like, oh look, there's me. Is I that have, the kid who makes out I with have, uh, Marley Shelton, the lifeguard? Different character. Oh. D- d- different character, though. That though that does happen. I, yeah. I'm not sure there's ever been a more beautiful woman than uh, Marley Shelton in that movie. It's very <laughs> important to me. 
So I could identify with Scotty Smalls. I could identify with his lack of skills. And I could identify with his lack of knowledge. Because a goodly chunk of my life as a kid and my life now is people dropping sports names that I don't understand. <laughs> so when he's like, yeah, the baseball, he got it from some woman named Ruth. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I, I see that moment in the movie and I was like, yes, yeah, that's that's me. That's I'm yeah, I'm I'm connecting with uh with this movie on a very deep level. Um and and all of it. Anyway, so I, I I enjoy the sandlot. Um a fragment of baseball movie, which I saw much earlier as a kid and and which forms part of the I guess whatever mythology of baseball I've got. Mm-hmm. Is the end of the natural? Oh yeah. Um, were you going to talk about the natural, Nathan? No, I wasn't. So roll with it. Okay. So I've never seen the natural, like the whole thing, because I'd be Saturdays at my grandmother's house flipping through the cable, and the last five minutes would be on always. <laughs> like I, 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 I have no, I have no visual recognition of any other part except the climactic moment at the very end, in which Robert Redford hits the home run into the lights and they all explode and he slow motion runs uh, out the bases uh, while uh, everyone slow claps uh, and the music swells. All right. Uh, yes. Yes, that. <laughs> so in my head, that's what a home run should look like. Mm-hmm. Um and that and that has that has also informed the sort of internal mythology of baseball, such as it is in my own imagination. So what have you got, Nathan? Well, I mean, you guys have already mentioned the uh, natural and field of dreams. So I, I feel like I can, I move past those, uh, <laughs> the baseball movie par excellence. And I actually mentioned it, you know, five years ago when we did our, uh, trilogy on movie genres is bull Durham. Uh, in my mind, not only the great sports movie of all time, but also the great comedy movie of all time. This is not a kid's movie. Listeners, uh, if you even for an instant had a thought of showing this one to your kids, don't. Uh, it is one that I watched uh, over and over and over with my uh, roommate back in grad school, Dave Pecha, who's now a elementary school principal in East Tennessee. Uh, but this is uh, Kevin Costner, Tim Robbins, and Su- Susan Sarandon, uh, who really we talked earlier about you know baseball as a metaphor, uh, baseball in that movie is a metaphor for opportunity. And in that movie, you've got Tim Robbins who has every opportunity in the universe lying ahead of him, but he lacks the discipline. He lacks the vision to see that he really could seize the world. Uh, and instead, you know, he's interested in, you know, easy hookups, easy money, uh, you know, basically wasting all of his talent. Kevin Costner on the other extreme is the one who never quite had the thunderbolt in his arm that the gods put there to, to misappropriate or misquote, I guess a line. Uh, but he has all of the discipline in the world. He, he knows the game like nobody else does. So their interactions, uh, blend in with Susan Sarandon's character, who is really the best actor in that movie. I mean, she is just wonderful and she plays a, a person who you find out as the movie goes on, kind of missed her opportunities to make it big in the academy. Uh, she is living in Durham, North Carolina. 
everyone, I mean, in the English-speaking world knows that that's where Duke University is. It's implied that, you know, that's where her training is. And yet she is teaching, you know, freshman English at a local community college and basically seducing young baseball players at the Bull Durham's park. At the Durham Bulls park, pardon me. So, you know, it, it is a wonderful movie, wonderfully quotable lines. Uh, you know, it's actually got some depth to it philosophically. It's also the only movie that I can think of where the sex scenes are not just utterly gratuitous. Uh, and by that, I don't mean that they are not uh, uncomfortable because they are, but they actually reveal <laughs> something about the characters. Uh, and, you know, I, I obviously I could gush about this movie for half an hour. I'll try to refrain to from that right now. Uh, but I will say that, you know, it is definitely a part of my baseball mythology now that I'm a grown-up in a way that it wasn't when I was a kid because my parents had some sense and wouldn't let me watch it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, David, I'm sure that this happens in other sports, and I'm realizing more and more as we roll roll along that you're just the person to ask about this. (laughs) Baseball, at least in my circles, brings out the legal experts in people, Uh, people who, you know might have gotten their high school diploma and then went straight into the workforce, all of a sudden have law degrees from Yale when they start talking baseball. (laughs) So first, without a Google search, tell me what the infield fly rule is. And then once you've either attempted that or refused that dare, talk for a bit about the casuistry and the intelligence or the appearance of intelligence that surfaces when our American countrymen talk about baseball. Nice. Um, well, I know what the infield is, <laughs> and I'm fairly certain I know what you mean by a fly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, beyond that, I got nothing. Michael, um, can I, you recite it? Yeah, well, I, I don't know if I can recite it, but the infield fly rule says that if the if there's a pop up to the infield, the batter is automatically out, and the the reason for this is if if it wasn't there a fielder could intentionally drop the ball and get an easy double play. So I'm mm-hmm. not sure if it always applies or just if there's a runner on first, but that's yeah, the fly rule. It, it, it's actually only if there's a force at third and only if there are fewer than two outs. Okay. So okay. It, we, we've reconstructed it between the three of us. <laughs> uh, between the two of us. I'm not sure David had much to do with that one. He, he told us what an infield is. I didn't know, well, so I'm glad. Actually, I didn't tell you what an infield is. I told you that I knew what an infield was. Close enough. <laughs> it's, the, it's the dirt, right, David? Yeah, uh, it, it, the part with the dirt. It's the part inside of the square, which is mm. a diamond. <laughs> right. So that actually sets um, what what things I can say up perfectly. So we are humans. Are humans are legalists? Right. Um, we are we are all born lawyers. And it, you know it from the first time uh, you see two children uh, arguing over whose turn it is and uh, establishing all of their different bases for the rightness of their claim. Right. Uh, and baseball serves as, uh, I think, probably a, maybe not maybe not anymore. But for at least significant chunks of our particular nation's history, um, baseball probably served as 
the majority's introduction to the fine niceties of a law-based endeavor. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so there's that. There's that 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 social function. But one of the things that I didn't appreciate um, when I was a kid, to me, the rules were all just there to be, you know, complications and things to trip me up. It's like that. It's like that card game where the rules constantly change, and and until you find out that really it's just there to to screw around with the with the people who are new at playing the game. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of how I felt about it. It wasn't until later that I realized that there actually is a love of of the game that lies at the heart of the rules and that the rules are attempting to keep it fair. There's a vision of what the good game should be. And that doesn't include infielders intentionally not catching a pop fly in order to force the guy at second Mm -hmm. (laughs) to run Mm -hmm. to third because the guy who just hit the ball must now run to first, you know, um, the vision of the game played well doesn't include that intentional error in order to force someone else um, to make a larger error. And so the, and so the rule exists. Um, I have been to, you know, youth baseball games in which, you know, the fathers are on the sidelines are all better umpires than the one who's actually behind <laughs> the plate. Uh huh. Um, you know, and I've heard, uh, I've heard my, my, my brother-in-law when he was much younger after games, um, you know, dis- uh, discussing some of the, the, the niceties of the calls and how everything in the game hinged on this one particularly egregious um, failure of the umpire to enforce baseball as it ought to be played. Um, yeah. Anyway, I've, I find it, I, I find the, uh, as as an outsider, as one who stands on the outside, I, I feel like a, I feel like an anthropologist <laughs> <laughs> talking about uh, the the way that a particular human um, human interest manifests in a in an activity with which he is himself not personally <laughs> involved. But see, this is what makes baseball a dignified game as compared to a barbarian sport like hockey, which has, as I understand it, essentially two rules. You know, you have icing and is it offside? I can't even remember the name. Yeah, offsides. Offsides. I hate hockey. <laughs> I don't I, hate I, it. I, I just don't understand it, but... it in any way. Um, but so, I mean, the, 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 the law aspects of baseball are important. Right, I mean that's what that's what yeah. makes it a that's what makes it a sport, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, what makes it? Um, I mean, cer- certainly you could have a sport with fewer rules. That's what makes right? it the sport it is, I guess I should say. Yeah, I mean it, it's 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 the thing that makes it more chess-like. It's mm-hmm. the thing that makes it more um, a thinking person's game, I guess you could say. And and not just about uh, speed and skill, but also also te- uh, tactics. Mm-hmm. It it also makes it uh, in my own experience, probably not in David's. 
uh, a ready well from which I can draw water for illustrations when I'm talking about philosophical concepts. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, I regularly go to baseball when I'm talking about these sorts of things. And I mean, more often than not anymore, you know, someone will say, uh, you realize that there's only two people in the room who actually know about baseball, right? And I say, yeah, I know, but I, this, this makes sense to me. So <laughs> let me run with it. Nice. Well, Michael, I did some Google searching of my own, and all three of our colleges not only have baseball teams, but maintain websites for those baseball teams. In your experience at your institution, where does baseball fit in the ecosystem of intercollegiate athletics? Baseball's weird in Minnesota, because for most of the season of college baseball it is entirely possible for us to be under six plus inches of snow (laughs) Mm. so what generally ends up happening with our baseball team is they have to reschedule a bunch of games and then you don't see your baseball players for three weeks it drives me nuts i don't know why the ncaa doesn't start scheduling the games entirely at night um if they're going to if they're going to pretend these are student athletes shouldn't they be going to classes but they don't because because they miss so many um so many classes for their games which is not their fault exactly i'd blame the ncaa as i do for so many other things um i, I don't think you hear as much about our baseball team as you do about our football team and i don't know if i don't i don't, I don't know what the cause for that is i i must admit i don't really follow our sports programs mm-hmm. very closely so I, I I know them mostly by how they disrupt my <laughs> life, and baseball baseball more than any other sport is disruptive to the classroom at this school. Is that the same for you guys, or or is it just a weather David? thing? I don't know about baseball at HBU yet, um, but it certainly was um, it certainly was at Central in Kansas. Uh, probably not to the same degree that that you guys had it in Minnesota but definitely the 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 first there there were no home games um at the beginning of the season um home games would be scheduled and then they would get snowed out um or rained out and and yeah it 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 uh, many students i saw whose whose spring semesters were just completely destroyed by by the baseball schedule. Hmm. Um, and not just the base, not just baseball, also softball. Mm-hmm. And that, um, in in some ways, that 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 actually bothered me more because, um, not uh, not a statement about baseball players generally, but the ones that I knew that I was working with there. The baseball players, on average, cared less that things weren't going well for them in the classroom than the softball players did. Hmm, that's interesting. I would I would say that's accurate, I, and I, it's one reason for that I think is nobody goes to school just to play or just to play softball. Whereas I think even at a at a Division three school like mine, there are people who are here entirely because they were offered a spot mm-hmm. on the baseball team or yeah yeah entirely. and i mean you know i i and, I and i'm probably betraying my uh my proper loyalties here but in conversations especially with my seniors because i teach sections of the capstone theology senior course here at emmanuel mm-hmm. um 
I don't necessarily agree with it, but I can understand better now the mentality behind that because a lot of these guys, uh, you know, their families are in, you know, well, I mean, in this region, the chicken business. Mm-hmm. And they know full well that when college ends, they are going to be running that chicken farm until they die. So, I mean, it makes a certain degree of sense to me that they want to play baseball four more years before they start that life. So, I, I, <laughs> right, right. And I, that wasn't exactly, yeah, a yeah. I, mean, on my part. I, I don't especially like the mentality because, of course, I'd like for them to come in with the idea of being transformed intellectually. Uh, but I can understand that mindset better now than I used to be able to. And I suspect for some of them it happens accidentally. You know, they they come to play baseball, but they end up, you know, getting some sort of non-sports benefit from it. At least, I mean, that's... that's oh, to be certain. No, 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 no. I mean, I, I've actually seen <laughs> yeah. that happen. I mean, in my, my sophomore uh, ancient medieval lit class, I mean, I've had... A, a good number of baseball players come through that class. And I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, I just enjoy these moments after class. I mean, almost as much as I enjoy anything else about teaching is that, you know, they'll come up to me and they said, okay, so Aeschylus, I mean, he really thought that, you know, the gods wanted Agamemnon to sacrifice his daughter and Agamemnon really wanted to kill Trojans so bad that he's killed his own kid. I say, well, yeah, I said, man, that's messed up. <laughs> And I and I realized that, you know, I mean, they just entered into this larger world uh, where, you know, Greek tragedy exists. And I, that mm-hmm. makes me happy. Well, and and I don't know, maybe uh, I, I, I don't know about you guys, but um, once once you see that particular uh, that particular move made in Greek tragedy, maybe some of them are thinking about travel ball. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. And the thing, the things that were offered up on the altar of baseball, <laughs> could be, could be. Isn't Atlanta Christian College the Trojans? Isn't that their? Oh, the I should Spartans. know that, but I don't. That's the within my tradition, but I've forgotten. No, I, I was just thinking if they were the Trojans, Emmanuel should change their their mascot <laughs> to the Achaeans. <laughs> oh, I think they like being the Lions, which is, you know, I guess. Kind of a ironic, you know, given that we're a Christian college and they go into the arena as lions. But uh, <laughs> I was just thinking, well, God is also a lion. He's living on oh, the side, <laughs> roaring like a lion. <sighs> uh, that comes of getting your Christology from Narnia books. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, it, it's interesting, though, at Emmanuel. I mean, we don't have uh, cancellations due to weather because we are in Georgia. Um <laughs> And honestly, I don't lose my baseball players near as often as I as I lose my tennis players. Uh, well, and, and it's mainly because their coach schedules all of their games for Tuesdays and Thursdays for some reason. Uh, and I got yeah, hate you. Be. It's a, and, it's a and honestly, personal attack. It might be that that has changed because I don't have any tennis players in my classes this semester. But last spring, I, I lost my seven tennis players pretty much for the month of April. Mm. So, um, the scheduling part, you know, I, I hadn't even thought of, so that's interesting that, that that's what you guys saw in the Midwest. I mean, what I find interesting is that baseball, because it's not the prestige sport here at Emanuel, I mean, th- this is definitely a basketball school, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the baseball players have a certain chip on their shoulder knowing full well that, you know, 
the people who are going to be watching their games are going to be sympathetic faculty and their girlfriends, pretty much. And Aww. <laughs> hopefully, those are two. Yeah, distinct yes, categories. Michael, those are two distinct categories. <laughs> uh, you know, good grief. Well, one of them in particular is an overweight man with a goatee. So I. <laughs> That that's me, listeners. So uh, <laughs> you know, um, golly. Uh, <laughs> but you know, it, it, it's interesting to talk to those guys again because you know they definitely have a love for the game. And you're right, Michael. I mean, they come to school because they get to play baseball for four more years, knowing full well that when they walk across that stage, baseball is over. Um. At least they love Yeah, something. yeah. And, you know, because you also get students who come to school just because it's like the socially appropriate yeah, yeah. thing to do. And, you know, I mean, it, it, it really is a moment where I have to reflect on the fact that, you know, desire really is something worth thinking about because that mindset is so alien to me. Uh, and yet I know full well that as someone who is uh, offering an invitation into the life of the mind... I have to be able to build some kind of bridge to those students. And, and, and like I said, because baseball is so much a part of my life, I, I find it easier to relate to my baseball players than I do to my basketball players. Uh, but, you know, in, in my mind, I mean, it, it is kind of a, a Dante moment where I really have to confront the reality of desire. Mm. By the way, if you're playing Christian humanist bingo, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he does. Too, and, and yeah, and Beowulf too. <laughs> Beowulf is is a lot like a baseball game. Do you guys know that Jeff Moore in the Distance song? Home no, Run? I do not. It's a it's a terrible like CCM uh-huh. song from the nineties, and uh, it it uses it uses baseball as an incredibly obvious metaphor for the Christian life. Right. But then the second verse begins, you know, life can be like a baseball game. Oh, really? <laughs> really? How interesting. <laughs> oh, heavens, heavens, heavens. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Jim well, David, I, I, I'm remembering as we wrap up why I prefer to host more limited subject matters for these conversations because there's a ton more to talk about when it comes to baseball. Mm-hmm. But we are running up on time and we have classes to teach and uh, baseball players to invite into the life of the mind. So one more time, since it is the baseball episode, let's take it around the horn and leave our readers with some thoughts as Little League ramps up, as spring training approaches. David, hit leadoff for us. One of the things that I'll sometimes see uh, oh, I'll, uh, com- comments by uh, people on Facebook or uh, I'll, I'll hear, hear it in church sometimes uh, stated, um, you know, why do we care so much about this? It's not like God cares. Um. And I think that's something worth thinking about when we come to this topic. Um, might God care? And I used to be one, someone who might say, no, surely not. You know, why, why would God care about baseball? Um, but I 
think I've kind of changed that uh, in, in my thinking on that. And and here's why: because there are real excellences of real human goods that that come out in that game, um, and the game exists for the display of those goods. Um, in that way, it it's athletics as art, um, as a chance for uh, for us to see the human which God made with the excellencies of the human which God gave. Um, portrayed in a particular light, framed by particular challenges, uh, particular feats um, that we can appreciate and learn to love, learn to love this thing that God made called the human. So maybe God does care about baseball, and maybe those of us like me who have been uh, disengaged from it. Um, Maybe I'm not going to go out and you know buy lots of baseball cards and you know all the rest of that and you know become a super fan, but at least not hold it at arm's length and ask with a sort of implied sneer, "What can that have to do with me as a Christian and a thinker?" Mm-hmm. I will point out though that the the the. Sp- sports industrial complex in this country threatens to destroy all the genuine goods out of all these That sports. is true. I mean, I, I agree with you 100%. There's real excellences here. But uh, I think I think they're in danger not from people um, like you, David, but but from the, uh, the, the supposed protectors mm. of them. Same war. Well, the institutions are rotten when you when you when you make it. It's a it's a misdirected loves mm-hmm. thing, right? To to get Augustinian, it it's it's taking something that has a genuine place in human society and giving it the preeminent place in human society, and it just can't mm. bear that. That's what I. That's how idolatry works, right? Idolatry is is putting putting um, ultimate status on something that that can't possibly be ultimate and it, it's bad both for the person who does it and for the and for the mm. thing they do it to mm-hmm. so I, I mean Nathan you talked I, th- I don't think this was on the show I think this was in our pre-show chatter a few weeks ago you talked about how professionalism has even made its way into the oh yeah, little yeah. leagues and that's that's horrible, right? I mean, that's the worst thing that could possibly happen. To well, and leagues. you know, in my particular context, I mean, it's making it hard for my little, you know, Statham Little League in small town Georgia even to attract players, uh, because on the one hand, you've got parents who say, "I don't want my kids to get eaten alive by these, you know, quasi-professional monsters out there," and then mm. the parents of the quasi-professional monsters say, "I don't want my kid wasting time." at Statham Little League when they could be playing travel ball. Mm. Uh, it's, that, I mean, that's, that's a sickness, oh, yeah, yeah. right? I mean, that is, that is a, a symptom of the decadence mm-hmm. of the society. Mm-hmm. Also, also the pet smart, but that's, that's a different rant. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I don't say this, I don't say this from the perspective of some ivory tower intellectual who hates who hates all bodily pursuits. I'm not a Gnostic here. I like baseball. I like football. I enjoy watching them. But like I don't know how you can support it. And then you get then you get this this uh, they talked about this on the football episode of Sectarian Review, which everybody should go listen to. But you get this you get this situation where the team the professional teams essentially blackmail 
cities into paying for their stupid stadia with with municipal funds. Like I own part of the new Viking stadium, even though of course I have, I I have nothing I can do with that. (laughs) It's not like it's going to be cheaper for residents of Minnesota to go Mm -hmm. to those games. Right. It's, and, and by the way, most of these professional teams don't really pay taxes either. So I, I just like, it's just baffling to me either make them, either make them the property of the city. I would be, I would be in favor of that if the, if, if they wanted to let the, the city of Minneapolis run the twins organization, that would be fun. We could pay for the stadium, not a big deal, but this is a private company that makes billions of dollars a year and, and we're, we're building their stadium mm-hmm. for them. I, like I, 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 this, this is where I have to part ways with with professional and, for that matter, collegiate and apparently little <laughs> league sports. But not state and little league because we're still uh, learners league, as I've told scores of parents over the years. Well, I'll start flying. Uh, down yeah, there you should do so, Michael. Baseball and its purity. But you can watch my kids play; they really do love the sport. Now that I have yelled about everything that's wrong with baseball, uh, I, I will say that of all the team sports, it's the most existentialist. <laughs> uh, because it's not really a team sport. Every individual play is, is one person. Um, there, there's, not, there's not strategies the way there is in football. There's not strategies the way there is in, uh, in uh, basketball. And I assume there is in hockey, although uh, he- heavens, heaven knows I can't <laughs> find any strategies in that, in that bizarre game. <laughs> Uh, but in in baseball, you know, the the ball gets hit to the center fielder. Nobody's going to help him. There, there's there's nobody who can do anything but the center fielder. Um, so every single play is is one person, or or at most a, a you know one person passing it, throwing throwing the ball to mm-hmm. another person. And uh, there's something very appealing about that. Uh, yeah. So maybe that goes along with it being an intellectual sport, but it, this is this is not something you really do together. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I'll, I'll kind of wrap up by saying that baseball is one of the reasons that I call myself a wannabe Anabaptist, uh-huh. uh, because the Anabaptist writers that I read have such a singularity of identity. Uh, you know, you are an Anabaptist. That's what you are first and foremost, and really. In a lot of these cases, that's what you are exclusively. One of the things that keeps me grounded, I think, when I coach Little League, when I go to the, see the Gwinnett Braves, which is a AAA affiliate of the Atlanta Braves that's much closer to the house and I can actually afford a ticket, um, is that uh, I stand up for the National Anthem. I really enjoy watching America's pastime. Uh, I am, you know, yelling at the umpire right along with the people beside me. Uh, it's a reminder to me. Uh, and you know, if you want to call this an affirmation of plurality, or if you want to call it a confession of sin, uh, please write in and let me know which one I'm actually executing here. Uh, but I realize that I am a baseball fan and I am a Christian. I am an American, uh, and I am a Protestant, uh, and, because of that awareness of my plurality, uh, honestly, it, it gives me a certain reserve when I am tempted to uh, style myself in public as some sort of, you know, radical extremist Anabaptist type. Uh, I always have to tell people, if I'm going to be honest, that I am a wannabe Anabaptist because I just enjoy minor league baseball too much. 
Um, <laughs> and when I say it, I mean it. <laughs> well, guys, uh, first of all, thank you for talking baseball with me. I know that you guys uh, don't live the baseball life that I like I do, but uh, you you were very good sports today, and you let me uh, wax uh, eloquent and aesthetic, and once Michael jumped in, existential about baseball for a bit. Uh, what will our subject matter be next time, or does that remain a matter of agnosticism? Well, I'm hosting, uh, I'm hosting next time and we have, uh, we have a, t- a, a topic in the, in, in the hopper. Uh, but are we still waiting to find out whether or not that will fly? Nathan's not going to be on the show next week cause he's doing right. something. Par- parenting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so so we've got two guest hosts we're looking at and depending on which one of them we get uh will the topic will but be both will be super interesting yes i can promise you that be watching the facebook page because we'll uh we'll post as soon right as we know right so listeners is. you'll be able to hear me again in two weeks i don't know if that's a promise or a threat <laughs> uh but next week we will have a guest host which should be awesome i'm looking forward to listening to it well, folks, uh, thank you again for downloading the uh, Christian Humanist podcast as part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Amber Lee Copeland. Uh, if you want to find us on the Internet, you can find us at ChristianHumanist.org. We have a Facebook page. And, of course, we are there on iTunes just waiting, waiting, waiting for your five-star review so that we can get some more listeners. Uh, but until then, until that guest, guest hosted episode, I am Nathan Gilmore in behalf of David Grubbs and Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. <laughs>